Welcome to Sherd's Podcast, where we're dedicated to exploring the peripheries of world literature and unearthing neglected texts from outside the mainstream canon. and sluggish wind was pushing a fistful of leaves up against the window. Wolf, fascinated, was waiting for that little slice of daylight that was periodically unveiled by the backward movement of the branch. Suddenly, and for no specific reason, he placed his hands on the edge of his desk and brought himself to his feet. He walked down the stairs and went outside, where his feet made contact with the brick pathway. The path which led to the square, was lined with bifid nettles and cut a swath through the red grass indigenous to the region. A hundred steps away, the gunmetal grey structure of the machine hacked into the sky with its diabolical triangles. That was the opening paragraph of Boris Vian's Red Grass. The English edition was translated by Paul Knobloch and is published by Tam Tam Books. The book is a surrealist and dreamlike science fiction novel in which the main character, Wolf, a melancholy engineer, builds himself a machine that allows him to travel into his own past and eradicate his memories. Over the course of the novel, we follow Wolf's rapid descent into oblivion and its impact on his companions Lil, Lazuli and Folavril. Perhaps a satire of existentialism Perhaps a veiled song of mourning for post-war France, Redgrass is a rich and somewhat obscure work that really got us thinking. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to the third episode of Sherd's podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prowse. How are you doing, Rob? Yeah, very good, Sam. What's it like over there in London? Um, it's a little bit grey and miserable, and I think that's going to be it for the next few months now. Back to school weather, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty grey and dreary day in uh, in Warsaw here as well. But maybe that's fitting for the for the book we're looking at. Absolutely, yeah, I was going to say. So we're talking today about Boris Vian's novel Red Grass, which was published in 1962, but written over the years 1948 and 1949. It's a strange one, Rob. How did you feel about reading this book? Yeah, it's certainly strange. And um, I think we probably both agree that it takes a fair while to get to grips with it. I think we've now both read it twice, which uh, for the books we've been speaking about in this series, uh, I don't think either of us have had to do. I think it it's an amazing book once you've got to grips with it, but it's not the easiest. Yeah, I had a very similar impression. It, it really is a difficult one. I think it would be it would be a stretch to say that I really loved reading it, uh, especially the first time round. But I think maybe it's not supposed to be exactly a, a palatable book. Did did you have that impression? Yeah, definitely. I think as we'll discuss a bit later in in the kind of biography Vian also writes under a pseudonym and and writes these kind of satires of existing 
um, genres. And I feel this book is almost a similar kind of thing. Like halfway through the book, I thought, I don't like this. I don't like the characters. I don't like where it's going. <laughs> and then suddenly the, the rug's kind of pulled out from under your feet and you, you end up questioning actually what, what Vian really thinks and what his characters think. And that's quite nice, but it does make it a tough read. Yeah, it, it kind of pushes back against the reader. You're never quite on level ground. You're always sort of unsettled in some way by either the subject matter of the book or, or by the style, which which is really idiosyncratic. But I think a good thing about it is that it sort of demanded of me a much more active mode of reading. And I, I feel like the enjoyment came quite a bit later when I when I'd had some time to sort of digest what I was reading and hold it up to the light a little and look for some clarity. But I'm not exactly sure that's what I found. Even so, the the process was enjoyable. There are things I really love about it. It's pure strangeness. It's a very peculiar world that, that Vion has created here. And I also really like the the sense of melancholy that runs like a basso continuo throughout this entire novel there are some really beautiful passages as well don't you think it becomes quite lyrical at times oh yeah definitely and that's really the things in the first reading that really grabbed me uh, exactly as you say in the in the second reading kind of forcing myself to slow down a bit and really start to unpack things the themes i felt for me started to emerge and that's when I really started enjoying it. But yeah, certainly first time round, there's glimpses of real beauty. Great. So I, I believe you have a bit of information about Vion and his, his life, Rob. Maybe you could tell us something about him. As well as being a writer and a poet, he's a musician, singer, translator, critic, actor, inventor and engineer. And these are, I think, quite important in terms of understanding some of the characters, especially this dual life as, as both a writer and a musician, but also an engineer. I think that's very clear in the main character of this book. I guess it's really important not to project Vian's life onto the characters because they're certainly not him but he suffered uh, from ill health throughout his childhood and this is something that certainly plays a role in the book and then as I imagine for almost everyone in the country uh, the family was very affected by the Wall Street crash in 1929 and yeah it seems his living conditions changed slightly for the worse. In 1940 he meets his wife who introduces him to American literature and begins to learn English and this as I was saying earlier seems like a very important part of his development as a writer having not been quite as successful as he would have liked to be he makes a bet with a friend that he can write a bestseller and writes this kind of pot boiler noir under a full pseudonym claiming to be the translator into France uh, into, into French it becomes a bestseller partly because of the controversy that comes out when it, it it becomes apparent that actually Vian has written the whole thing. In the middle of the 40s, meets uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, Albert Camus, and then begins to move in these in these literary circles. But his marriage is, is destroyed or, or collapses after uh, Sartre and his wife uh, have a relationship. That might play a, quite an important role in uh, 
our consideration of the book no there seems to be a, a element of a personal vendetta going on absolutely and so the the novel uh, we're looking at today as you say it was uh, 1949 1950 but wasn't published until after his death Vian's ill health continued throughout his adult life as well he's something is a of a workaholic and yeah he died in 1959 there's a story about this which sounds almost too good to be true but it goes that there's a film version of this famous fake american pot boiler which was called i spit on your graves and he's in the screening uh, screening room seeing it and he gets incredibly angry about it and the film is awful he doesn't think the the actors are playing americans and uh he gets so angry that he has cardiac arrest and dies and and that's the end of quite a short life yeah so very um very interesting life seems to have really excelled in in a huge range of disciplines but as you say there's a there's definite bitterness that comes through in the book it's hard not to you know make an assumption that this may have come from from his life Um, so I thought it might be worth talking a little bit about the setting of the the book. It's never quite clear where the action of this this book is taking place, but I certainly got the impression that it's set in some kind of undefined future city uh, where society seems to be set up in such a way that work and residents are integrated. The characters seem to live in apartments that form part of a larger complex which also includes the workplace we gather little details gradually about about this place we know there's a central square where the inhabitants gather for ceremonies and where the main character wolf has built his strange time machine there also seems to be a poor district where the streets are filthy and smells waft in from open doors and that's where Lil goes to meet the, the soothsayer who divines the future through through smells. Uh, there also seem to be stretches of wilderness surrounding this city. There are mentions of distant places that sailors have visited, the empty isles, for example. And there's also a pleasure quarter called Lover's Parish, which I found really interesting. And in this in this quarter, the, the colours and smells and sounds kind of assault the senses Uh, there's a really nice description of it that i could just read so it describes how they've followed the main thoroughfare and turned in the direction of lovers parish they passed by a gilded gate and everything became luxurious the facades of homes were covered in turquoise or pink lava and the ground was blanketed with thick unctuous lemon yellow fur above the street one could make out domes of fine crystal and etched glass in both mauve and aqua. Street lamps with perfumed gas lit up the numbers on the houses, and in front were little yellow televiewing screens which could be used to control the behaviour of those occupying the dimly lit black velvet boudoirs. The music, mellow and diabolical, could knot together one's last six vertebrae. The women who weren't working stood in front of their doors in crystal alcoves, flowing with relaxing and appeasing streams of pink water so in this image of lovers parish this pleasure quarter i got a real sense of a kind of 
organizing force behind this hedonism. And although it might be a place where the city's inhabitants could find some release, it seems to be very much a controlled release or something that's designed to pacify the spirit rather than to free it. So while we don't get any strict, clear definition of how the society is structured, it seems to be a society under some kind of central control. The idea of these very specific quarters, the compartmentalization of of the life there certainly gives that impression there's also a very interesting moment in that section where the they bump into these sailors and the the sailors talk about how strange it is to be on land and they ask them why and they say at sea there's at least some variety no two waves are the same here everything is alike houses and more houses yeah it certainly suggests some kind of vast uh, uniformed way of living I, I was made to think of some of the architectural experiments in living i mean le corbusier came to mind f- for me absolutely absolutely there's also i felt something incredibly prescient in the whole thing having on my first reading not actually delved into the kind of the actual uh, chronology of the book and realizing that it was actually written far before it was published I thought that this was kind of, I guess, kind of early, but still of its time, like a kind of 60s colour palette and this this kind of like post-war turn towards um, hedonism and things like this. And certainly the, the way he's describing these houses with the tele... Well, the televisions, basically. So this this kind of bubbling pineapple liquor that they're drinking, it, it seems very of its time. And then when you realise that actually this is written in 1950, it becomes... I don't know, a very, very different thing. Perhaps prescient, perhaps, I don't know, like a satire of something that's not going to happen for another 15 years. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. It feels, it does feel like a typical psychedelic 1960s vision of the, the future, doesn't it? Would you agree that it it is the future? Is that even clear? It's. It certainly seems like it takes place after some kind of an event, the mayor of the town, who comes in at, at some point in the book, talks about the kind of like re-establishment of a democracy. And so we can either place it post-war, so in Vian's present, or perhaps even further in the future. Certainly his inventiveness in the book it feels like he's trying to suggest something slightly more in the future. There, there seemed to be a few things that suggested to me that it was the future, so strange appliances and gadgets and so on i don't know if you remember a short passage where lil is um doing her nails and she has a strange box with beetles in it that climbs from from one finger to the next and seemingly paints her nails working by itself somehow and also a strange x-ray lighting that they turn on during a party at one stage um, so there are a few little things that seem to suggest it's the technology is more advanced somehow but yeah it's not it's not clear it could be something more like a dream it's certainly not the most literary reference but it did remind me quite a lot of Luc Besson and um, the fifth element oh yeah as a french director perhaps there's some kind of uh, shared cultural touchstones i don't know in terms of this 
being set in the future or, or possibly in a kind of like dream state. Uh, it's really interesting to think about the cultural context that Vian's writing about. Something we both thought was really important seems to be the state of France post-World War Two. As the main storyline seems to revolve around this machine that the main character Wolf is building, well, we eventually find out that this machine's function is, is to erase memory. There's something about the French collective social attitude to the role in the war, collaborationist government, and how you deal with that kind of trauma on a national scale. It's obviously five years after the end of the war. So these wounds are incredibly raw. There's also, I think, in terms of his relationship with some of these huge figures of existential writing, there's a certain idea that people can begin to reinvent themselves either as heroes of the resistance when perhaps they haven't really been that active. I know it's a big controversy around Sartre in particular that after the war his his writing is perhaps re uh, reconsidered as writing of resistance and it's kind of controversial whether that's true or not. So that certainly seems to shape the book, this idea of forgetting. And I guess that's really important in terms of what kind of future you could imagine for yourself. Are you encumbered by the past or do you forget it? And in which way, how does that process of forgetting happen? So I, I think it's quite interesting how that process of forgetting is cast in this novel. I think I think Vian seems to be fairly sceptical about the possibility of cleansing a nation or cleansing a, uh, an individual through that process of forgetting. The way that it's cast is essentially that Wolf, if we're to read him in these historical terms, undergoes a kind of almost psychoanalytical process. So in each of his trips in the machine, he goes back and undergoes a, an interrogation uh, at the hands of some figure of authority in, in his past life. And... I I read it as quite satirical about the possibilities of revisiting a traumatic memory in order to gain control over it or to stilt its influence on one's life. I felt like the smallness of these traumas rendered them quite laughable. And that's a strange kind of disjuncture there between the, the seriousness of problems of national historical memory and the way that it's cast on the individual scale. Do, do you feel a sort of tension there between those two things, Rob? Certainly, it's kind of on record that Vian perhaps doesn't have an awful lot of time for psychoanalysis. And there seems to be, in his eyes, a certain egotism in this return to these personal problems to kind of overcome. And that perhaps Vian sees this attitude to memory moving away from the, the kind of personal realm. It seems like the characters never really ever address any of the political situations. They're certainly aware of them, and especially the women talk to each other about political or, or social situations. But when it comes to Wolf's kind of self-psychoanalysis, it never moves beyond very sort of self-centred problems. I don't know if you felt that was the case. The so-called trauma in Wolf's life seems to be essentially a parody of bourgeois existential angst. For example, in the first of the meetings with, with these authority figures, Wolf discusses the trauma of going on picnics with his family, claiming that the sight of a 
of a shopping bag with a broken handle, with the thermos and the bread sticking out. Even today it's enough to sicken me, to make me want to kill someone. We're, we're constantly alerted to the, the smallness of particularly the male character's traumas, and obviously Wolf is the character we're closest to. And it's not only through the kind of laughable nature of these traumas, but also through the, the female characters that we we read a kind of criticism of it. They, for the most part, seem to be handling life perfectly well. And although we might be forgiven for thinking that the female characters are empty-headed or vapid in some sense, you know, we're constantly told about how much time they spend doing their nails and putting on makeup and, and dressing up and so on. But later in the book, it sort of transpires that they regard both Wolf and Lazuli as little more than sulky children somehow. And it's hard not to imagine that Villon shared this view of the ennui-filled existentialists of his, of his day. And that uh, antipathy towards these world-weary, melancholic archetypes is also really evident in this exaggerated use of the pathetic fallacy you mentioned to me, in, in fact, how every quality in, in nature, the landscape and the weather, things that are supposed to be immaterial are made material. They're kind of given material presence. And that seemed to me to be a kind of extreme version of the pathetic fallacy. You know, there are moments when a street is described as diverting itself through through boredom and storms begin when when characters are troubled it seems like there's a really strong link between the mental states of the characters and the world around them but i thought it was really important to remember that in the original coinage of the pathetic fallacy john ruskin writes about this device as a kind of weakness as a kind of unworthy practice in literature for him it's a kind of flaw it's used by poets who couldn't penetrate to the very truth of objects and resorted to using the landscape or nature to describe mental states. And I think that that's another way that the massive self-absorption of, of the male characters is, is figured in this novel. Their world literally moulds itself around their moods. So I think Vian's view of, of that process of, of cleansing is is one of disdain and I'm not quite sure how that how that links to the important process of healing for the French nation do you think he's being intentionally provocative there for me it was a it was a huge changing point in the book where suddenly the male characters disappear for a chapter and the two female characters speak to each other and all pretense is dropped they even talk about how they're you know they're saying you know we, we don't know what we can do for these angsty men we're even trying to be as stupid as possible and and this is you know you suddenly realise that for all the for all the kind of existential angst the the female characters know themselves far better than the men. I was wondering to what extent there was a maybe a slightly more serious philosophical point about this kind of like existential angst and the pathetic fallacy. I absolutely agree that that certainly the male characters' idea that the entire world as you say mods itself to to their kind of emotional state but i was wondering because one of the really interesting bits i felt about this physicality of something immaterial uh was this co constant reference to the sky you know the sky is described like a diaphragm uh, a silvery belly that droops down that it 
the sky moves closer to the ground, there's a certain menace. And interestingly, the original title of the book, before it was going to be published, was going to be called The Punctured Sky. Yeah, I did read that, yeah. So the machine itself, obviously, is, is kind of described very, very vaguely. And it certainly is inside the ground and goes deep inside the ground, but also when it's being used by Wolf, seems to propel him upwards somehow into the sky. And I couldn't help thinking of some kind of Tower of Babel, this attempt to get close to God, or this, this kind of purity or perfection that the male characters seem to be striving towards. And constantly failing this this is kind of for me the the kind of failed masculinity but i was wondering uh something about age of enlightenment religion obviously in in the book itself by the main character at least is is kind of disdained so when you have this kind of post-religious mindset that there's a certain claustrophobia when everything's brought so much closer, when when the ephemeral becomes scientifically describable or something like that, there's a certain claustrophobia of everything being so close and so tangible. And so something like a Tower of Babel becomes ridiculous because it's this attempt to reach something ineffable is a pointless task. And there's a point where where Lazuli even describes Wolf's attitude as someone attempting to run away because the because the sky is falling down. So I wondered yeah, really whether whether this also had a kind of broader idea of where French society or European society is at the time. This movement away from religion. I mean, this is, of course, the at the core of kind of some existential beliefs. Yeah, the, this this needing to find something to to replace it was for me also in that pathetic fallacy that's really interesting i i hadn't exactly linked those two things but i was very aware of this imposing upon the characters of a much more tangible kind of desire wolf talks quite a lot about how from a very early age he'd been given goals that were supposed to kind of satisfy him so he was supposed to find solace or gratification of desire in either his studies and his eventual profession or getting married to someone or even in in sex somehow but he seems to have come to a huge point of disillusionment and that seems to be the kind of burden that he's that he's carrying i was quite interested in this idea of false meaningfulness and this is exactly how wolf describes religion in in the book in one of his interrogations so he seems to have a particular problem not just with the absence of meaning but when meaningless is kind of masquerading as significance. Yeah, in the second of the interviews, which is about religion, it's described how at church they also learned hymns. The chapel resonated with the sound of Lamb of God, so sweet and gentle. And Wolf now marveled at how these words of love and adoration could be so meaningless, have no function for him, nor for any of the others around him. Nothing other than the purely musical sound issuing forth from the boys' mouths. And then he later goes on to describe how the religious experience was a shabby disappointment, a pathetic comedy, and then the mild regret of not knowing if you had really glimpsed Jesus or had simply been overwhelmed by the heat, the odour, the tight-fitting collar, or having to wake up so early in the morning. Emptiness, a measure of nothing. So I think 
this links to a few things we've been talking about. So one of them is this idea of the tangible supplanting the immaterial as a kind of life goal, but also maybe cast some light on on the kind of sensory assault that is encountered by wolf and lazuli when they when they go to the pleasure quarter it seems as if society is imposing upon them certain forms of release or gratification that ultimately have very little meaning at all one of my favorite small passages of the book comes just ever so slightly after the the bit you were talking about but he talks about taking communion and um, I suppose maybe transubstantiation as like the pinnacle of Christianity's thinking about meaning. And then he goes on to say that uh, the fear of having to eat him, you end up at home with your stomach full and the bitter feeling that you've just been had. This, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this, this, uh, this thing, you know, of, of which I personally find fascinating, this idea of transubstantiation, that, that something can be two things at once or it, it can have a meaning that transcends it, its physical manifestation i i just find quite hilarious that it's uh, <laughs> your stomach full and the bitter feeling that you've just been had it's um like a, a kind of a damning indictment of christianity's bestowing of, of meaning do you think wolf's sort of motive for going into this machine and gradually er- eradicating his his memories is to gain some kind of clarity or do you think it's to dis- destroy himself i know that's what it eventually does but I don't think that's entirely clear, but I was quite interested in a passage after the first of the trips in in the machine, and he comes back completely exhausted mentally and and physically, and is being kind of helped along, carried by Lazuli and Folavril, and Vian writes that they walk down the path in silence. A light fell forth from Wolf's eyes and struck the bloody grass. It was a hostile and cold light whose two beams shot forth before them, fading with each passing second. When they arrived at the door of the house, the massive opaqueness of the night closed around them. I kind of puzzled over this, and it wasn't something that I even noticed on my first reading, but I eventually took it to be suggesting that if Wolf's trip in the machine had given him any clarity, it was only enough clarity to open up a greater abyss than the one on whose precipice he'd been standing formerly you know beneath this meaninglessness that he sees is only a greater emptiness uh it's certainly something i felt in more general terms about this kind of journey towards the complete destruction of memory that he attempts to undergo it certainly seems to need to go further and further almost like an addiction constantly needs to uh i don't know have this have this hit of of the machine I found it incredibly interesting that uh, when seemingly his only friend, Lazuli, dies, and he's told so by his wife, his immediate response is that nothing has changed. He kind of ignores it and, and starts telling these anecdotes and then immediately returns to the machine. That It, it completely blinkers his, his ability to see anything larger than that very specific aim. At first they rushed in and an organised horde like a blaze of odours, light and murmurs. Were these authentic memories? Each one was a mishmash of impressions from other periods superimposed upon each other, giving each a different reality. Not memories, but rather another life relived with another personality, itself in some part a result of these memories themselves. 
One can traverse the flow of time without covering one's eyes and ears. In the silence, Wolf shut his eyes. He plunged even further ahead, and before him stretched the four-dimensional sound map of his fictive past. He must have been going quite quickly, because at that moment the sides of the cage simply vanished. He detached the hooks that held him in place, and set foot on the other side. I was quite conscious of the way that the experience of reading this book replicates uh, Wolf's condition, that experience of finding meaninglessness everywhere or finding meaninglessness masquerading as meaning. Because any moments of profundity in the book are never given the time to sink in or they're otherwise whisked away or undermined by, by a kind of absurdity i think it's a really deliberate device on the part of the writer when we were first reading this book rob and we we spoke on the the phone i was saying to you about how when i read a book i find myself mentally noting all the things that seem to be of significance you know i'm tracing patterns holding on to ideas or words or images that might come back you know i find myself looking for uh, some unifying principle that might help to open up the book somehow or, or at least provide a kind of entry for interpreting it but when I read this book, Red Grass, I found that my normal toolkit, you know, my interpretive arsenal wasn't really up to the task somehow. And I had to, to a certain extent, allow myself to be led on a seemingly arbitrary trail by the book. The vehicle of it, of it the, the kind of mechanism by which the text progresses seems to be the non sequitur. You know, what, what little logic it has is the logic of the dream state, surreal events and dialogue just follow each other without explanation. There's this talking dog. We go hunting with this dog and wolf looking for a small green creature called a wapiti. And, you know, this sinister, darkly dressed man keeps materialising out of thin air and silently terrorising lazuli. Nothing seems to make concrete sense uh, on the surface of the narrative. And I thought, to begin with, that we might attribute it to the influence of surrealism i was looking again at the surrealist manifesto that andre breton writes and he advocated in it the use of a psychic automatism through which thought would be expressed but without any control exercised by logic or by moral or aesthetic considerations i thought that this might be what red grass was doing but the closer i looked at it the more i found myself thinking that vian was intentionally denying the reader meaning in order to replicate the experience that that wolf is having one particular instance of it springs to mind do you remember rob quite quite early in the book when wolf leaves a party with Folavril and he's feeling quite depressed and not really in the mood for for dancing they lie down together on the grass among the flowers and and wolf asks her what is it that smells like lily of the valley there aren't any right now. And Falavro answers, I remember Lily of the Valley. There used to be plenty, whole fields of it, as thick as hair in a brush. We'd sit down in the middle of it and pick it without even standing up. Lily of the Valley everywhere. But here it's a different plant with light orange flowers like little red discs. I don't know what they call it. Under my head there are death violets and there, by my other hand, there are asphodels. And as a reader, my immediate impulse was to begin thinking about the symbolism of 
of these plants that are, that are mentioned there. Lily of the Valley has associations with Christ's resurrection and purity and humility, and asphodel has these chthonic resonances. You know, it's really strongly associated with the underworld. And I found myself starting to think about how this could have particular significance for Wolf's state of mind, his sense of being fallen somehow, and the trips in the machine working like a kind of metaphysical catabasis, you know, a descent into the underworld. But then immediately afterwards, you're confronted with these pathetic lines of dialogue. Wolf asks, are you sure? And then Folavra replies, no, I've never seen any. Since I like that name and those flowers, I decided to put the two together. So straight after these flowers are mentioned, Vion alerts the reader to the fact that they have no significance whatsoever. They're only mentioned because Folavro likes likes the sound of them or likes the names. And I found that this was sort of key to how the, the book functioned. It mirrored that burden that Wolf finds on his shoulders. I sort of got the feeling that, as I was saying earlier, sort of after after having committed this literary hoax, it's almost like he's now doing this on a on a meta level that even within the book you're being told things and then they're taken away. You think you know where you're going and all of a sudden <laughs> suddenly the the direction changes. Even even in the very beginning, this is on page seven, when uh, Vian is discussing uh, the setup with Wolf and Lazuli and, and Lil and Folavril. He speaks about how they all live together. But this isn't, he doesn't give any explanation in terms of the things that we might conjecture that this is, you know, some, some kind of like Soviet style of living. He just says to ensure narrative symmetry. And there's these points where he, he absolutely makes you very aware that he, he knows what's going on and he's going to make the reader step back from what's going on. But I would also perhaps argue even a step further that as well as kind of making you question meaning in exactly the same way that Wolf does, I would say that perhaps it was all part of this idea that Wolf's quest for meaning, whether, I don't know, in, in some kind of like unity of meaning is, is completely absurd. And it certainly seems like that's the case for Wolf himself. But I, yeah, I felt all this constant shifting was exactly this. It was, it was saying that it was a futile effort to try and find this meaning. And I don't know if he gives us many answers in terms of what, what would be better. I was just going to say that that idea is also kind of embedded in, in one of the characters' names, you know, Folavril. Yeah. Which translates as April Fool's. You know, an April Fool's joke, you're made to believe a, a narrative and then suddenly it's it's pulled away from you and uh, revealed to, to be nothing or to be entirely devoid of meaning. Even within the names, he's he's a kind of real master of this because quite early on in our reading, you asked me what I've made of the names and obviously that's the most obvious. And so you begin every single name that comes up, you think, oh, well, what does that mean? And I just had to come to the conclusion that an awful lot of the names don't, don't mean everything, anything. So, you know, why Lazuli? There's something about blue and then you're trying to find this meaning and, and perhaps there really just is none. What about wolf? Does that have any significance for you? Is it a kind of another level of the the parody that he's supposed to be this lone world weary figure yeah i mean certainly in terms of the idea of lone wolf that definitely springs to mind and then i guess yeah vian's interest in in american culture it's something that i didn't want to try and overread into the book but it felt like there was like with the with this kind of like pleasure quarter it's makes you wonder 
how much this is the kind of effect of, of American culture on Europe at the time, how things are changing, what this kind of outsider's view of America might be. A certain individualism which perhaps comes from the US. Maybe I'm clutching at straws a little bit, but it certainly made me think of that. I can imagine a, a, a character in a noir film called Wolf. Yeah, yeah, it's quite a hard-boiled name, isn't it? Lavril waited, paralysed with fright. She found the carriage to look at Lazuli, and she could see the wounds on his scorched skin started to disappear one by one as each man was transformed into a fog. There was no longer anyone in the room but Lavril and Lazuli, whose body became young and beautiful in death, just as when he was alive. His face was intact and relaxed. His right eye, lifeless, shone from beneath long, drooping eyelashes. A lonely little triangle of blue steel formed a curious stain on his powerful back. Falavril stepped towards the door. Nothing else moved. One last wisp of ingratiating grey vapour slipped away with a bit of help from the window. She finally ran towards the door, quickly opened it, shut it behind her, and moved down to the hall towards the staircase. Just then, the wind started to roar outside and there was a terrible burst of thunder. A rough and heavy rain pounded into the tiles. Polavril ran down the stairs and came to Lil's room. She entered. Once inside, she closed her eyes. There was a big flash of light, bigger than all the others, followed immediately by an almost intolerable explosion of sound. The house shook on its foundation, as if a huge fist had smashed into the roof. And then suddenly, there was total silence, and it left her ears humming like when one dives down deep into the water. In both the male characters seems to be this death drive. Lazuli feels perhaps superficially slightly easier to understand, like a certain angst, seemingly born of um, a much more conventional inability to perform or some kind of masculine failure. But equally, Wolf's Wolf's search for, for meaning is inextricably linked with the masculinity. But I don't know what you thought about this death drive. Both characters obviously do die <laughs> at the end. Lazuli is a suicide or, well, I don't know if you can call it, it's not quite so simple as a suicide, but having been tormented by these figures who we eventually find out are his, his double in some way, or uh, his doubles, realising a complete inability to ever be free of them, he decides to, to kill himself instead. I sort of um, read his death as almost a kind of description of, I don't know, orgasmic climax or something. The scene directly before that is uh, slightly pornographic, shall we say. It's a kind of erotic scene. He's finally getting to grips with Folavril, and it seems like the only way that Lazuli can build up to this climax is is through this orgy of of violence and we also see that in the in the pleasure quarter you know it's not just visiting brothels sleeping with prostitutes and so on there's also a really violent edge to that as though within this society the masculine release that's encouraged is is essentially blood sport killing beating and so on so i certainly think that was really tied to this this kind of masculine death drive that's described here i'm not sure 
Vianne would necessarily be that happy about us bringing in Freud, but I'm going to do it anyway. Death Drive is, is completely linked to Desire, and it's clearly like a really important part of the book. But it made me think about the point where Wolf finds Lil extremely upset because this, this talking dog is seemingly in a kind of senile vegetative state. But in fact, it's purely that having the object of his desire, he has, he has nothing, nothing left. He seems to have entered this kind of beatific state. Wolf says this thing about getting rid of desire, which is, I find really interesting, just the, that concept anyway. But he says that you have to have what you most desire or you have to, to lose interest. In either case, it ends in oblivion. Uh, and so actually, yeah, that I, I hadn't read Lazuli's death in quite that way but that is it certainly fits the pattern in terms of perhaps yeah he 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 does achieve this or it could be read in one sense that yeah if it's this kind of pinnacle of his desire that yeah it it ends in oblivion reading it the second time i just you know i underlined that word oblivion several times when i when i got to it and i thought that it was essentially the the key term of the book every character is denied gratification. The most obvious one is is certainly Lazuli. Every time he becomes physically engaged with with Folavril, this darkly clad figure emerges and kind of stares at him. It's not particularly clear what Wolf's desire is, but for him it seems to be almost death itself, almost oblivion itself. Throughout the novel there are many many moments when it's clear that that that's the direction uh, that wolf is is headed in you know when lil goes to the soothsayer this soothsayer is kind of doing a nasal tarot reading and she says to lil well look at this an exact confirmation of everything i've just told you great happiness for someone in your household someone will find what he's been looking for but only a long time after recovering from illness. I read this long illness as essentially life itself and that what what Wolf had been looking for all along was death. There's also a moment when Wolf draws a little picture. Yeah, it says, To lift his spirits, he took a piece of paper and some coloured chalk and made himself a sketch. He looked at it, but the chalk eroded into dust before his eyes and all that remained on the paper were opaque angles and dark voids that reminded him of a skull and crossbones obviously this this seems to link to this parody again of of psychoanalysis you know this is almost like what you imagine wolf would read in in any ink blot any rock shark <laughs> test that, that that could be presented to him yeah i i essentially read death as Wolf's ultimate desire and the only one that could actually be achieved. I kind of felt that for Wolf, desire was was a weakness and that what he was looking for was, yeah, this erasure of desire. or And that, for me, inevitably would lead lead to death or oblivion. I don't know, there's points where the book, for me, is, is just straight-up Freudian. When it, or, or at least, or at least um, Wolf's ideals, it seemed, to fit into like a, a, a very specifically Freudian mould. When he's talking with one of these interviewers who are helping him to destroy his memories, he says, I prefer a system in which all active forces are null and void. And this is literally Freud's definition of, of death drive. But then, far more explicitly, right right at the end of the book, speaking to this penultimate interviewer, 
He says, I've always been able to extinguish my, my desires, but I'm dying for having done so. And I think at this point he, he realises that he's on, on this path and there's no way he can get off it. Certainly this force against desire or suppressing desire can only really lead one way. I, I do think it's really important that this whole journey that he's on is kind of rendered absolutely ridiculous in his final act i think we both we both noticed how there's quite a clear parody of the outsider in a certain scene right yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a kind of murder on a beach and yes yeah, described like this he knelt down next to the old gentleman who looked at him with terrified eyes while his mouth hung open like a dead fish then he grabbed a handful of sand and shoved it into the old man's toothless mouth one for childhood, he said. The old man coughed and drooled and choked. Wolf took another handful. One for religion. Upon the third, the old man started to grow pale. One for education, said Wolf, and one for love. Swallow it all, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> and then it follows on, says, As for the last one, concluded Wolf, it is reserved for your eventual metaphysical incertitude. I think this... This whole journey he's been on, his whole, the whole burden that he seems to feel is being quite, quite comically undermined. And essentially, Vion seems to be saying that men in particular just seem to be unable to handle existence. I found it interesting reading this scene for a second time. I sort of wondered, I mean, obviously, it seems like there's a very, very clear parody of The Outsider. But I also wondered, actually, whether Lazuli's death and Wolf's death actually echo each other in as much as, as this interviewer who he kills is really a stand-in much like Lazuli for, for himself, that he's killing himself. I was interested because this interviewer, before he kills him, all he, all he does is just insist that uh, Wolf pays his tax. And, and it seems to be saying there's, you know, there's, a, there's a price to pay. I'm, I'm not entirely sure if I, if I really agree with that, but it was something I was kind of thinking. Yeah, I didn't see it quite like that. I saw it more as a kind of uh, something like a, a childish outburst when you look at how the women react to the disappearance of these two, two men. You know, they kind of walk off together into the sunset and agree never to date any more serious men. <laughs> they say nothing but shameless playboys, ones who like to dance, who dress well, who are well-groomed, and wear pink silk stockings so it seems it seems to be quite a, <laughs> quite a roundabout way of making quite a simple joke about i don't know intellectual grandstanding basically bourgeois intellectuals taking themselves too too seriously one really interesting thing i think actually because in that list of things that that wolf exclaims as he's shoving these handfuls of sand into this guy's mouth i think there was one that you missed and it, it's one that i find really really interesting it's the penultimate one and he says uh, one more mr pearl for your activity in a, as a cell in a larger body yeah to go back very quickly to desire if desire by its very nature implies an object of desire so it's always something outside of it that any kind of movement to extinguish desire or get rid of desire will be a kind of movement becoming completely self-sufficient in the most absolute terms and there does seem to be this this taking aim at like a quite a ridiculous very much masculine individualism which denies anything outside of itself and then for me that was really interesting in the context of what Folavril who as we've discussed is is kind of portrayed in most of the book as this kind of quite stereotypical 
ditzy blonde. And then there's, yeah, there's this amazing moment where, where they suddenly speak together and, and it becomes very clear that that isn't the case. And it also becomes clear that she's incredibly intelligent. Or so, you know, this, this character is probably has the most to say about the situations that they find themselves in of anyone. And yeah, there's a point where they're talking about the, the kind of difference between men and women and and Lil asks her why men can't deal with the world or why, you know, why this kind of existential angst, why women can and, and men can't. And Falavra replies and says, because there's a prejudice against us and that gives each of us the power of the whole group and they believe that we're complicated because of this whole. And they become this really, yeah, this, this kind of like coming to terms with being both an individual and part of this group seems to be what, Vian is suggesting is is the women's strength something that at least Wolf just can't countenance. That's another thing that is in in Wolf's name as well, right? He doesn't doesn't want to be dependent upon anyone. Mm. It's essentially kind of perfectly selfish quest that he's on. He even regards it as a a moment of release when he smashes his wife's favorite crystal bowl. There's a very petulant release. He really, he really thinks that he's overcome these kind of deep-seated psychological issues by suddenly being incredibly selfish, not realising that actually all, all the acts prior to that were incredibly selfish as well. They're just uh, far more obviously selfish now. I was really interested in what on earth the red grass was. Uh, I know we'd spoken about it before and neither of us were very sure. Yeah. Um, but I was wondering, and again, this, this might be a bit far, but I'm not sure. I mean, for a start, why is it red? And there's literally points where the grass does become bloody. And I was wondering whether it had something to do with kind of like nature and history or, or the, the kind of imprint of history on nature. One one of my favourite points in the whole book is is when Lazuli dies and the house metamorphoses it to to reflect this to reflect this change that you know it's not an empty room the roof actually goes down and and all trace disappears and I was quite interested in this idea that in quite a different way from the very subjective idea that the weather or something like that might might reflect your angst. That actually there's a there's a kind of like social environment may be reflected in the environment itself. And so post war I was wondering whether maybe actually it was quite important to yeah, in terms of something like, I don't know, like killing fields or like uh, I suppose site more First World War, but these bloody fields, the site of war, that actually these are quite important to acknowledge. And then at the very end of the book, the the grass begins growing back over the machine and this kind of pit which is now seemingly full of of wolf's memories and it says that it it starts to grow back and yeah i think it's lil that says that the the machine won't be there much longer and so yeah it didn't it didn't seem like he was suggesting that there was this i don't know if if this reading holds any water uh that that this this grass was kind of like this unchanging thing but there was something there about this larger hole that needed to be or a larger larger thing made of its parts that was historical and needed to be acknowledged i don't know is that do you think that's a step too far (laughs) (laughs) no not at all i was also quite interested in the way that there seemed to be a sort of 
reciprocal relationship between the grass and these these collected memories these destroyed memories that seem to create as a kind of byproduct a dark liquid there's almost a sense that they fertilize the ground and cause the grass to grow it is the byproduct of the erasure of trauma that has to take place before nature can kind of reassert itself or can begin its cycle again but i guess we'll never know for sure yeah and it could just be Vion throwing us another red herring that it's, it's actually completely unimportant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe he was originally thinking of calling it red herring. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherd's Podcast. If you have any comments or questions about our conversation, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. Join us in our next episode when we'll be discussing Zerana Zatelli's At Twilight They Return. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.